Talking DLD. Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean here. Did you know that developmental language disorder can also co-occur with other disorders or conditions? Today I'm joined by Professor Sean Redman for a deep dive into DLD and ADHD. Welcome everyone um, to this month's episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I am really excited to be joined today by Professor Sean Redman. Sean, welcome to the Talking DLD podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Sean, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to developmental language disorder? Yes. So my secret origin story, right? Yes, please. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm the oldest of four children, and I'm the only one of my siblings that didn't uh, go into speech therapy as a child. So um, I was aware of speech language pathology um, uh, from the services my siblings were receiving. And it is the case that my siblings had profiles uh, a lot, they had they had speech problems, uh, speech sound disorders that were worked on and, and fluency issues. But th- there's more than a little bit of language creeping around there in my family tree. My dad was one of those sort of late talkers that had like a family uh, myths around, you know, deciding not to talk until something wasn't um, acceptable. And then they started complaining. And my siblings all went off into areas that really didn't um, place demands on their language abilities. So one of them is a math teacher and there's a computer graphics designer. So that's how I got into speech pathology. Um, Another thing that was part of my early experiences was when I was putting myself through college, um, one way to work weird hours um, and get reasonably good wages was to work in uh, institutions and group homes. Um, And so I had exposure to folks with communication disorders or different kinds for different reasons um, in a non-educational context. So focusing on leisure living skills and um, uh, community engagement sorts of things, daily living hygiene. So I had that background experience. These were these were usually uh, young adults and adults with uh, developmental disabilities that often included intellectual disability as part of their profiles. And so I had a, I had a familiar background with some of the issues involved with those populations. And then I started getting interested in the research side of things, moved over to the University of Kansas to study under Mabel Rice. Mabel Rice was at that time running an experimental preschool program for kids with specific language impairment, the term that predates developmental language disorder and um, is a little more exclusive than the more inclusive DLD designation. But, But part of what happens when you do that and you work with those kids you sort of um, diminish the contributions of intellectual limitations and see what a language impairment um, uh, can, 
how it can impact children's lives on its own. Um, and so that was an interesting combination because what I started to see was that these were really very different groups of kids um, behaviorally. Although when I when I read our literature at that time, there was a sense that these things were being sort of like collapsed into a very grim portrait of lots and lots of problems. And so I became interested in the issue of getting a better handle on what are some of the sort of social, emotional, and behavioral consequences of having a language disorder. And that led me to poke around on like, well, how do you, how do you measure a social, emotional, behavioral problem? Uh, so I did coursework in clinical psychology and developmental psychology. And one of the things that struck, stuck out to me immediately was just how language biased the instruments were. Um, and so, especially at that time, there wasn't a deliberate segregation of language symptoms from uh, social symptoms or, or behavioral symptoms. Um, and you would see on, you would regularly see on these scales um, talks in complete sentences as an item that would penalize a, uh, a kid who, who the scale is being filled out on as having a social emotional behavior disorder. Um, and so that became a real interesting challenge because well, how do you differentiate between these things when in the classroom context, it's it can look the same. So a teacher sees a child who can't follow directions consistently, who um, has having problems with their peer interactions and are uh, academically underachieving. Those, those classroom signs are identical for both ADHD and uh, developmental language disorder. So that, that started a whole research enterprise getting into uh, the issue of differential diagnosis, which has been um, very neglected in our field. Uh, at one point, I did a survey of our pre-professional training textbooks to see how much coverage there actually was in differential diagnosis when it came to language disorders. And um, there isn't much um, to really, uh, and it, it stands in stark contrast. If you are going through a, a program in speech language pathology and you go through your um, coursework in aphasia or your coursework in uh, speech sound disorders or fluency for crying out loud, there's all these schemes and protocols for differential diagnosis, but we really haven't presented that to our um, pre-professionals when it comes to language disorders. So that's that's how I got interested. <laughs> mm. And it's such an interesting um, process to go from that, you know, familial experience, uh, work-based experience, and, and what drove you through, uh, you know, to be investigating this, because often, um, we forget that uh, potentially that there are people out there, you know, experiencing this, whereas you've, you, you know, that's a part of your, as you've said, your origin story as, as to why you do what you do. Um, and, and you've already touched on this, you, you know, as a researcher, you've just investigated so many different facets of living with developmental language disorder. 
and you've touched a little bit on this next question, but I'd love to delve into a bit more. What drew you to investigating ADHD and DLD? Well, there's a, there's there's an opportunity to make a contribution here because the 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 evidence base is quite. Um, on the one hand, it's it's been sustained, and there's been lots of research consisting of very large study samples, but the measurement schemes that have been brought into on the question um, haven't really given us much detail. So um, at one point I was interested in finding out what was the characterization of um, kids with ADHD from like a language sample perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and what I was able to track down at that time were characterizations of the number of syllables kids were speaking in their language samples. Um, there wasn't any real consideration of grammatical complexity or uh, the sorts of things that a, that a speech language pathologist would be interested in. Um, the number of utterances I remember was, was a major interest for people working in psychology. I think what they were interested in was, were things like speaking rate um, because individuals with ADHD um, uh, can have a tendency to be um, very verbal. <laughs> yes. Uh, as opposed to what we typically see with kids with developmental language disorder was where they don't speak as much. They're not as loquacious um, as their peers with ADHD. Um, but it was really hard to get a to get a real clear characterization from like a speech pathology perspective of, you know, of what was going on in terms of number of different words and MLU and metrics of grammatical complexity. It, it just wasn't there. Um, and meanwhile, there was this very consistent blanket message that kids with ADHD are almost certainly going to present with language disorders was kind of what the what the main message out of these studies was coming out with. Um, those were those were for the most part, but not exclusively coming from like uh, clinical samples. So the caseloads of psychiatrists and psychologists um, would administer a battery of language tests. Sometimes they were reasonably good and sometimes they were off the mark from our perspective mm -hmm. um, and there was this indication that there was elevated risk of an unidentified language disorder in many kids with ADHD receiving services for ADHD um, uh, then you've got you know it, and those were either um, clinical samples that were just referring to the norms from the test or they were clinical samples compared to kids with typical development. Um, but um, you, re you really didn't see for a, while, for a long time a comparison of uh, three groups. So kids with developmental language disorder, kids with typical development, and kids with ADHD usually had a clinical group and then a normal comparison. And the problem with those kinds of studies is that you kind of I've already answered your question before you collect the data because you've allowed one group to vary on the dimension that you're interested in. So, for example, language in kids with ADHD, but the kids with typical development aren't allowed 
to vary in their language abilities. They have to have normal language abilities to be in your study. Um, and then you find differences and it's kind of unexpected. And that got me interested in the measures that were being used to identify ADHD. That also forced me to reconsider some of our assumptions when we measure language and how sometimes when we think we're measuring language, we might be measuring other things, um, especially with some of our more um, demanding protocols in terms of uh, sustained attention and time. Um, whereas um, what's, what's, what's been interesting, so I, when I came into sort of um, maturity in <laughs> my research, um, the 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 interest in the in the late nineties early two thousands was really on um, is it possible to have a theory of specific language impairment right is we haven't had a theory of specific language impairment up until that time and when you start getting into well how do you test different predictions from different theories you realize that so much of it depends on how robust your measurement systems are. And so then we, as a field, got really interested in clinical markers that we've, we're starting to see were um, uh, sort of very robustly separating kids with language disorders from kids with typical development. Um, so it was no longer the case that you had to pick an arbitrary cutoff on your clinical mar marker, you you would essentially get two piles of scores with um, uh, a clear differentiation between the two. And these tended to be measures that were uh, quick, right? So things like non-word repetition or sentence recall or an elicitation tax that, that drills into grammatical weaknesses like tense marking or uh, complex syntax. These could be done relatively quickly as opposed to something like a vocabulary test, which can take a very long time because kids, um, many kids take extra time to reach the ceiling of their skills. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we brought those language measures over to kids with ADHD um, and uh, I think Part of their virtue of being quick and dirty in that sense is that we can get in there and measure a child's abilities and be done with it before they have too much time <laughs> to be distracted yeah. um, or go off task. Um, and we also did studies and we're doing studies where we've got a group of kids included that have uh, both conditions. Um, with the a question of whether if you have both, does it make your symptoms worse? And and so far we're not finding any evidence of that. Um, so so going back to theories, right? That shouldn't be true if there's something about um, attention that is increasing children's risk for language disorder. Uh, it, and, it, and it makes perfect sense that it should be the case that if you really um, have difficulty uh, sustaining attention and uh, inhibiting 
yourself from looking at other things, which is kind of like the other side of the coin of the distractibility symptoms, then you're going to kind of miss all of that rich language input that's supposed to be helping you develop your language system. Um, and, and so one prediction would be that if you had both, then that would mean you should have worse symptoms on these clinical markers. It also suggests that if you have ADHD or other reasons to have weaknesses in these areas, then your performance should be sort of like subclinical or you know maybe splitting the difference between language disorder and uh, typical development. And we're, we don't see that uh, usually in our study samples. And it's nice to see that other people are, are reporting the same things, that it's not just <laughs> something not weird <laughs> about kids growing up in Salt Lake City or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and so that that's encouraging because that suggests that if we if we lean in on these clinical markers and use them for differential diagnosis, then for the presence of a language disorder, then um, we we may not have to worry too much about whether or not we have like confounds or you know measurement error in those particular measures. Even though these have been around for a while, they still, they still, from my perspective, that feel still feels like they haven't really caught on among uh, speech language pathologists. I, I think part of that is it's it's sometimes hard to see how those weaknesses translate into functional deficits. Mm -hmm. And if we're interested in addressing, and we should be interested in addressing functional deficits, then maybe the enthusiasm for their value as you know uh, their diagnostic utility kind of like gets overlooked i think you've raised um for those people listening in probably can't see me nodding well they know they can't see me <laughs> nodding uh, but you've raised a really important point that often in language assessments we assume that we're evaluating language only um and those people that have participated in my training before know that i talk about the fact that um i don't think we could put our hand on our heart and say that you know completing a omnibus language assessment just assesses language only because you need sustained attention you're drawing on cognitive you know capabilities like working memory and all of these other facets so uh if we're not open to the idea that children with dlt can can and do present with other needs then we may actually not be considering the whole child as a part of our assessment process um and it's interesting that you know you're thinking about uh these children with dld and adhd and i probably hadn't thought of it exactly the way you worded it before that you'd expect their language skills to be significantly um poorer because we use utilize attention to engage in language acquisition learning language um and so that's i, I just thinking about what you're saying is a really interesting finding um we know that it's quite comorbid do you have a sort of sense at the moment as to how many children so, with DLD have ADHD? Is that a loaded um, question, Sean? Well, so at one point in one of my um, uh, presentations, I I laid out on a scale from zero to 100, uh, with 100% being complete overlap or comorbidity between the two conditions and zero being very limited, you know, being absent, um, and did a survey of the existing literature at that point. 
And, and what I found is that you could find very low values of comorbidity and very high values of comorbidity. And one would hope, but it didn't happen, that the values would cluster mm-hmm. around a, a particular value, but it seemed to be a pretty equal spread across reports. And I combined reports of, of how much, how many kids with DLD also have elevated symptoms of ADHD and how many kids with ADHD elevated symptoms of language disorders. So it, it turns out that if you separate those two sets, um, the, the risk for language disorder is relatively higher for kids with ADHD than the risk for ADHD for kids with language disorder. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So, so they're not, they're not like mirror complements of each other. Um, and it, it seems like the, the, um, the relative risk is about a, a twofold increase set to the population level, general population level. Mm-hmm. So, so if, if as many in the right, DLD so population. if if we if we round things up to like you know ten um, percent um, of of either DLD or ADHD in the general population, then twenty to thirty percent um, within those groups is what you'll see the presence of the other condition mm-hmm. is about what it looks like. So. The risk is there, but it's 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 a mistake to kind of think of it as um, uh, to actually the, the 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 relative risk for both of this those both of those disorders for reading difficulties is higher than their overlap, um, and so for kids with developmental language disorder, it's like on the order of what, five times? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then for kids with ADHD, it's about three to four times the risk for reading difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, there was some work done by Bruce Tomlin where he articulated the idea that the reading disability or reading difficulties was actually the bridge between language disorder and ADHD. Um, and he, he suggested an interesting premise that it was, it was the kids with language disorder who also had a reading dif- disability uh, and that because of the reading disability and the sort of academic and social consequences of that, that led to the behavior problems in the classroom and the behavior problems in the classroom started to drift into uh, concerns about co-occurring ADHD. Um, so it's almost, um, developed out of the inability of the academic context to kind of address the reading difficulties in a way for kids with language disorders. The kids with with language disorders that didn't have a reading um, disability weren't at elevated risk for ADHD in in that study sample. I think I've seen ranging from, as you said, sort of as like 20%, which is about double the, you know, prevalence in the typical, you know, general population, right through to some studies that are, you know, 70 or 80%. But does it depend really much on, <clears throat> it does it depend on how you define ADHD in your diagnostic criteria? And I think just moving forward, how would you define oh. ADHD? So, um, 
sometimes uh, I don't, and I just use the, the existence of an independent diagnosis of ADHD from a qualified healthcare professional. Um, so somebody like a pediatrician, for example. Right, yeah. or a, a clinical psychologist. There's, mm -hmm. there's a couple of categories of nurse practitioners um, that also have um, and psychiatrists also have the capacity to um, uh, diagnose kids with ADHD, um, and then also use rating scales. So, um, it's it's not so much who diagnoses ADHD, but how they diagnose ADHD. And uh, what you find out is that there there's much more. Um, enthusiasm or consensus on the value of uh, standardized rating scales filled out uh, primarily by a parent, but sometimes supplemented with teacher um, input, then uh, a sort of behavioral measure of um, inhibition or attention. Um, and the reason for that is because those measures have been notoriously unreliable um, and um, uh, they they don't always map on to these clinical symptoms reported by parents and teachers um, and so roughly only about half of the kids with a clinical diagnosis of ADHD actually perform poorly on continuous performance tests or executive function assessments that are based on on a behavioral response so that's that's very different already from like how we go about identifying language disorders where um we're kind of, apparently i didn't appreciate this until later in a bit of a privileged position because language disorder falls out of a kid's mouth <laughs> it actually is there unequivocally in the uh, quality and complexity of the sentences they're producing. Uh, they're producing ungrammatical sentences, right? And, you know, you need a little bit of training for, as a speech language pathologist to pick on the nuances of this, but it's pretty clear, you know, there's no, there's no issue of getting inter-rater reliability on whether a kid did or didn't say something correctly. Um, that's, it's a much more challenging proposal proposition to find out whether a child is um, behaving in a way that exceeds developmental norms in terms of their inattention, um, hyperactivity, or impulsivity. Um, and uh, those, those ratings can be highly context-dependent, right? So you, you might expect, depending on the demands of the of the environment, a child who might be able to do well on and recess on the playground um, with the in those areas struggling in the classroom when the when the demands are a little bit different, or between home and school environment. But an ungrammatical sentence is going to be produced <laughs> in the classroom, on the playground, and at home. Um, so that's. The, the other thing I, I've started to appreciate is that, um, uh, yeah, we can we can not only bank on like yeah, 
intra-radar reliability in a way that these psychiatric measures can't, that there's a lot of variation between parents and between um, some uh, mom and dad um, and self-report by the child and then what the teacher reports at school. You can get like four different stories in terms of these clinical measures. One thing that does seem to be true is that if a parent endorses a lot of clinical symptoms of ADHD, you can almost always count on the teacher um, also endorsing them, but the, the reverse isn't always true. So sometimes um, uh, we don't see that. So in my work, for that reason, we rely heavily on parental reports um, to sort of characterize the severity of the, the ADHD symptoms in our, in our kids. Sean, this might be a good time then to jump in and say, what might be some of the signs or symptoms that a person with DLD might have ADHD for some of our families who might be listening in and thinking, well, what have I been looking for? Yeah. Um, particularly when they've already got a condition, you know, we've described the language difficulties associated with DLD. You know, what, is, what does ADHD even look like in a person with DLD? Well, I, I, I wish I could speak with more certainty because it's uh -huh. not like we have a, a, a very broad database to work on. Mm -hmm. um, and as I mentioned, the symptoms in the classroom can look very similar. Um, the, the, the challenges where things are, are a lot harder to disentangle are between the symptoms of language disorder and inattention. Um, and the symptoms of uh, pragmatic deficits and some of the common sort of behavioral consequences of being impulsive um, in like peer interactions and things like that, they, they can very easily mimic each other's symptoms. Mm -hmm. the, the one dimension where um, there isn't necessarily a, um, well, there could be, but it, secondary interaction, but I mean, in the domain of hyperactivity symptoms, we, we can't imagine a child with a language disorder that is not hyperactive. Um, and in fact, most of the kids with language disorders don't have that as part of their profile. Um, and so if in particular, if you're noticing a lot of hyperactivity and impulsivity, um, now in the classroom, if the the level of instruction is not matching the student's abilities to benefit from what's being presented to them. Um, they can disengage and get bored. And then that can lead to what looks like hyper hyperactivity. And so there's, there's some realities about this, these two conditions that are worth talking about. One is uh, everyone is on the lookout for ADHD. That's kind of like the default framework for why kids would struggle in the classroom, but it's still not on everybody's radar to look for language disorders um, mm, as a not. contributing factor. And so it's almost like you have to unfortunately exhaust <laughs> the theory, the, the, the premise that this is ADHD and, and before people will start considering something else going on. Um, we have here in Utah uh, a developmental assessment center, which um, 
does things a little differently than where I think a lot of places do. And that is they screen for language first um, as an interdisciplinary team. And um, the, the way their flowchart works is that the kids see the speech therapist first and then the speech therapist's um, recommendations, observations, assessments inform what follows afterwards. And, and they've reported that that was, that was a game changer in terms of uh, making things room much more efficiently and being able to, because you can get kind of in these like spinning cycles of like finding confirming evidence for what you thought was going on. One of the things that I think isn't a connection that people are making is that if you have a language disorder, that means that sometimes you figure out how things are working and you're able to do things that keep up with your peers and other times you can't. And it's those times when the other sources of information that aren't verbal are getting you past that, right? There, there's enough redundancy and other streams of information that you're able to figure out what you're supposed to do. And sometimes that isn't there. You have to rely only on verbal information and you can't pull it together. So from a teacher or a parent perspective, that looks like the child is um, inconsistent and that must mean things like motivation or inattention because sometimes they do it right, sometimes they do it incorrectly. Um, and it isn't until you get them into an assessment session where you really drill into the language abilities, right? They can't escape. <laughs> this yeah. is all language. <laughs> That you can find, it. you can find the weaknesses um, that they might be able to compensate for in other environments, but the compensation is probably exhausting from the child's perspective, and it only works some of the time. Um, and so, uh, that's also true for for ADHD symptoms, right? It's not the case that a kid with ADHD is always impulsive or always inattentive. But um, when, when the other supports in the environment are there, they're able to keep things in check and pull it together. Um, and so if you had both, I think your life would be spent um, trying to get people in your environment to appreciate that it's not because you're lazy or because you're unmotivated or you know all these other reasons for why you're not performing academically, because there could be limited appreciation for the dynamic reality of of verbal and executive function and language and um, uh, attention. Hyper those things are always sort of um, contributing with each other. Um, that wasn't well articulated, but I think you get the gist. That it's no, it's complicated, is what you're saying. Well, it's, and it's and it's you can't always count on the on the on the limitation always leading to a direct consequence, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, so it can be context specific. Exactly. But um, I think it links back to an earlier point you said was that if parents identify it, it's likely that it's present across multiple. Um, occasions and settings and um, it's likely to be something that the teacher's noticing and the the parent is noticing perhaps if it's just happening at school I would and I'm putting on my my research hat here 
is starting to think maybe we need to look at adjusting the educational environment if it's just occurring at school and we're not seeing any of those um, inattentive or hyperactive behaviours within the home or community settings. We might want to think about, well, what's happening at school then? Exactly, exactly. And th the literature is interesting because it, it runs both ways. So if a child is in the gifted range and mm -hmm. the instructional level is not at their level of engagement, um, their disengagement can can lead to symptoms that mimic ADHD mm. in the same way that a child who with a learning disability isn't able to keep up with instruction. I mean, it's the same outcome that what you're getting is not set to your level. And mm. um, one of the things that happened with the diagnosis of ADHD is that the whole concept of situational ADHD, mm. where a kid only had ADHD when they were in school, <laughs> like from eight to three, yeah. you know. Um, Only for a finite period of time. Mo mo Monday to Friday, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not over summer vacation. Um, uh, was um, abandoned. And uh, as part of the, the differential diagnosis of ADHD, you have to rule out a learning disability mm. as a possible explanation for a child's inability to attend in the classroom. Um, I'm not sure if it's we've stated this as explicitly yet, but it also goes without saying you can have you can clearly have ADHD without DLD or alone, you know, and you can have DLD without ADHD. I think that um, what we're really trying to identify here is that children with DLD can be at greater risk, as we've already talked about. You know, they, there's a greater um, co-occurrence of ADHD and DLD, but also trying to pick apart. Sometimes parents will say to me, or clinicians will say to me, how do I know which bit is the DLD and which bit's the ADHD? And, and I guess what we're trying to say here in this conversation is, you know, it's very closely intertwined, um, you know, and we can't actually separate out, you know, one part of a person from another part of a person that they will inform each other. And I think your point around academic success and, and reading is really um, pertinent to yeah, that conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think on the one level, we, as a field, we could get to a place where we have a diagnostic protocol that is like ADHD proof, <laughs> that <laughs> if you have ADHD uh, and you don't have a language disorder, you should do fine on this protocol. Yes. Um, and I also think it's going to be possible to be able to screen for ADHD in a way that would be DLD proof. Um, yeah that's going to take a little bit more time um, mm -hmm. and engagement from the research community, but I think it's doable. Yeah. Um, so the diagnostic question could probably be settled about what, whether it's one or the other or both, but then um, again, the, the question is always addressing the functional impact of either or both of those conditions. And that's the place where things get, sloppy and entangled and so a child is not having is having difficulty reading and they have both a language disorder and adhd um yeah so how do you how do you plan to address both of those issues in the context of improving their reading skills um well that is, segues nicely sean then into what are our treatment well, options? <laughs> <laughs> what are our treatments options for someone with dld and adhd so what's just so what is disappointing um 
I think is uh, in both fields, interventions have been kind of moving along with um, uh, limited consideration of comorbidity. Um, so we, we develop intervention protocols for kids with developmental language disorder, but we don't include in our intervention studies <clears throat> very often kids who have both ADHD and developmental language disorder and ask, does that impact their response to intervention or does the intervention need to be adjusted in a way that optimizes the outcome for that particular case? Um, and then the same thing is true for interventions, behavioral interventions for ADHD, which are often framed within the general um, scheme of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, because the, the primary issue with ADHD is sustaining your attention and um, not letting your attention be captured by environmental distractors. Um, and so oftentimes the behavioral regulation difficulties that kids with ADHD have has nothing to do with their understanding of how they're supposed to behave. Um, they, they know how conversations are supposed to work. <laughs> they know that these are the ways in which, you know, you're supposed to get along with your peers and, um, you know, getting upset about someone cutting in front of you at the lunch line isn't what you're supposed to do. But in the heat of the moment, those things fall apart for the child with ADHD. Um, and uh, so, so a lot of this has to do with recognizing that those triggers are present in the environment. So it's very metalinguistic, mm. very metacognitive. Um, and Historically, there hasn't been much appreciation from people developing those interventions about how much of a burden is actually placed in the child's verbal abilities to be able to even understand what you're asking them to do and being able to um, kind of self-rehearse or you know maintain that kind of internal dialogue or monologue with themselves. Um, one, one example of this was which struck stuck out to me was a, a statement from one of these programs where uh, the clinician is supposed to ask the child after going through a series of hypothetical scenarios, uh, what do you think your friends would think if they knew that you had answered that question the way you did? So to get to that kind of metacognitive metalinguistic space, I just needed to do five layers of syntactic embedding. Um, and for a child with a developmental language disorder, you lost them after the second layer of embedding. And uh, a child with a developmental language disorder is going to respond to that question with a very weird answer because they did not interpret. They did not parse that sentence in the way you intended them to. Um, that's an observation that's been around for a while and people have been working at um, trying to reduce the kind of, you know, grammatical load and vocabulary too, right? So some of the vocabulary items and this sort of mentalistic operations that kids are supposed to engage in with cognitive behavior therapy. It's going to almost require kids who are gifted verbally 
to be able to really engage in this mm. um, and, and kind of like for our, our kids with language disorders, it's not really going to be much help. Yeah. Um, and so for, from that perspective, if, if I was a parent and my child was involved in these kinds of interventions, um, I would want to make sure that they were taking into account their capacities to follow the directions, even understand the vocabulary. Um, and if the child didn't seem to be responding to the efforts, that it wasn't something about the child's motivation or their engagement or their interest or you know their theory of mind or whatever kinds of things they want to bring up. It could just simply be that they can only handle <laughs> yeah. one layer of embedding Right. Two clauses at a time. Yeah. Facts. <laughs> Considering their language abilities within any form of intervention, I think, you know, this is a bit of a thread that seems to have carried us through today's conversation is if you don't know that they've got language difficulties. And I really respect your colleagues in the multidisciplinary clinic nearby who are doing this work with language first. You know, you don't know what you don't know and how to adjust it. And I think um, no more so than if you use strategies to support somebody with ADHD that are verbal based. Um, I argue, you know, a lot that uh, a, a strategy for anybody with DLD is about making language something they can interact with, something that's tactile and visible, whether they can read it or draw, you know, whether there's a drawing of it. Um, but I would say that, you know, some of that also helps with supporting their attention, you know, sure. and, and having something to, to link back to, particularly if they've, uh, you know, got very fleeting attention. It gives them something that you can actually come back to because it's really hard to come back to the word that's just sort of wafted off into the air in the classroom or at home. <laughs> you know, it's hard to grab that back and put it in front of yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was just going to ask Sean while I while I'm thinking of it. One of the other things that comes up around treatment options is um, medication, and parents often express concerns around medicating their child. Um, and you know, we know that there's a, a, a long history of research around you know, medication, what are your thoughts on that? Or, or what would you, um, you know, talk to, you know, say to a family who's questioning whether or not to medicate their child? So this is such a personal decision that families make. Mm -hmm. And it, it can be quite agonizing. And it can also be a point of contention among family members, where some people are endorsing or, or encouraging medication and other family members aren't. Um, so we see that happen occasionally in our um, families that we work with. And, and there's there's lots of opinions out there, very strongly stated opinions that families have to sift through um, to get to a place where they feel comfortable with the decision that they're making. Mm -hmm. So what I can bring into this consideration are a couple of observations that are supported by the evidence base. And so one thing that we do know about medications for the treatment of, of ADHD is their impact on ADHD symptoms are quite robust. And this is based on studies where they've had multiple years of treatment um, in a control group where the kids over that same time span didn't receive any medications. And the, the effect sizes are large. Um, for those of us that geek out on 
stats, <laughs> they're around 1.0. So that's a whole standard deviation of improvement in primary ADHD symptoms. So inattention and hyperactivity and impulsivity will improve under medications. Um, and we also know that to a lesser extent and independent of the improvement on their ADHD symptoms, we can expect some uh, significant improvements in executive functioning. So working memory, planning, organization, those kinds of dimensions, response inhibition. Um, and then when we get to like standardized test scores, we're on a less secure footing where there's uh, lots of very small effects alongside null effects where studies reporting that there's no improvement on um, like an IQ test, for example, as a result of a child being on medication for multiple years. Their standard scores um, tend to be around their standard scores before they were uh, treated with the medications. The, the, one, the one thing that has been pointed out by researchers is that being under medication will reduce measurement error. So it'll improve children's test-taking abilities. Um, and so if, if, you're, if you're concerned about a child with ADHD who's going into a high-stakes testing environment, so like in the United States, we have some achievement tests that are kind of brought into college um, applications and used as part of the determination of how competitive students are, you would certainly want a child with ADHD to take those under their medication um, to optimize their performance um, because it'll improve their performance a little, but sometimes a little bit is a big difference, right? In those like highly competitive environments. The idea that taking these medications could take a child who has a language disorder and get rid of that language disorder is quite remote. Um, you're, it's that would be remarkable if it was ever demonstrated, and so far it hasn't been demonstrated. But um, so I, I think the main benefit for for families of children with language disorder is that if your child also has ADHD and they take medications, that means all of the assessments that are going to be collected on that individual are going to be more accurate than they would be if the child wasn't taking their medications during the testing. I also uh, had a really positive experience with uh, a pediatrician once where uh, they, you know, this young person had what we now call developmental language disorder. I'm old enough to, you know, this was back when we used SLI. Um, and uh -huh. this, this young person, um, this pediatrician actually said, look, I, you know, I suspect, uh, you know, that medication might help. And what uh, he and I actually did was work with the family through a trial period, you know, so we actually collected really robust data um, before starting uh, a medical treatment, you know, uh, during the, the treatment, and then we compared the two just, and, and as the pediatrician adjusted their dosage, because actually that's something that I think we find can, you know, parents can find quite tricky is, you know, actually finding the right dosage you know, can be quite individual to the to the person, and that can be a really daunting experience. Is actually setting it up as almost a mini 
observational opportunity where you're collecting information so you feel more confident in making that decision. I really um, appreciate the pediatrician at the time stepping myself and the family through it because we've used I've used it a lot clinically since with families oh. and working with pediatricians is you know gone and looked at the data before and during treatment to see if we felt there was a robust effect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially person. especially if you go to the extra mile and actually make those assessments blinded. So when the person collecting the language testing doesn't know whether the child showed up medicated or not, mm -hmm. um, um, can be can be implemented pretty easily. Um, I mean, one of the one of the things um, I started to appreciate working with families of kids with ADHD is is the, their level of openness to sort of like allowing assessments to be connect collected on or off medication mm. um they they are probably used to that titrating experience um they many families that we work with um give children medication um vacations right so yes breaks they, from, they yeah. breaks from the medication yeah yeah um probably not under medical advice but yes. <laughs> they they feel like it's something that they can turn on and off um, mm -hmm. and look at the consequences across different contexts and decide, you know, whether for this context, the medications are needed or is in these other contexts, can it be relaxed? Um, yeah. And, you know, I get it. There's, there's real questions about authenticity, right? So which version of you is the real you, the one that's under medication or the one that isn't mm -hmm. that's, something that an individual with ADHD has to grapple with. Um, and when you're a child, you don't really have <laughs> that capacity. Um, but I mean, you know, children grow up to be adults and adults um, uh, bring these considerations into their self-identities. And so it's, it, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic that um, is quite foreign, quite different from, what we typically experience as speech language pathologists, right? Mm. Oh uh, yeah. If we had a yeah. pill for treating a language disorder or a speech sound disorder, I think it'd be a whole different um, well, you know, whole different approach, whole different consideration. Well, those things exist, but they're just, you know, there's vitamins for language development mm. out there that are completely without any evidence base. Mm -hmm. In fact, they've they have studies showing that they don't work. Yeah. Um not just that they haven't been looked at, right? The mm -hmm. absence of evidence. This is truly like no evidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, families can access these things, unfortunately. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they're always presented with the sort of stream of testimonials mm -hmm. that can be quite compelling because we're designed as humans to really be interested in stories and narratives and yeah. those kind of tap into that. Yeah. Oh. We got kind of off track there, but I want to make no, sure no, on this point. podcast, the message that I'm not suggesting that, that medications um, are likely to have an impact on a child's language mm. development. That's not the case now. I mean, who knows? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you have any other advice or recommendations for parents who might be listening in who are concerned that their child with DLD might also have ADHD? We've talked about some of the um, 
sort of signs and implications, but, you know, anything else you'd like to add for them? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't work clinically um, with these populations. So I don't, I don't do intervention research either, for example. Um, and so um, the, the reality is, is that clinicians working with kids who have both are kind of piecing this together um, from multiple sources. They're probably taking a look at what's going on in the ADHD interventions and trying to adapt them to the limitations that are brought in by developmental language disorder. Um, and then considering how our language interventions depend to different extents on the abilities for children to um, uh, sustain attention and to benefit from them also need to be worked in. I mean, we're kind of, a, in, in my lab, we're kind of in a privileged position because we, we more or less just rent the children's time. Um, they come in, we have our agenda, we figured out ways to keep the children engaged with our assessments. Um, and um, we don't have the burden, extra burden of trying to teach them anything. We're just trying to <laughs> measure what they're able to do. Um, when, we, when we do collect language tests from children with ADHD, we've learned um, to really relax any requirements that the child um, is actively displaying mm -hmm. their uh, attention or engagement. So kids can sit on the floor, kids can sit on their feet, um, kids can uh, fiddle with things in their hands. So pencils and um, uh, ripping up sheets of paper seem to be things that kids like to do. Um, we have had kids do vocabulary tests where they pointed with their toes. Um, and because we just wanna find out what the child's underlying linguistic abilities are, we don't care about, we sort of let them do however they wanna do it. Um, in the classroom context, you know, that would be a very different situation if a teacher allowed a child to do all those things. Um, while they're engaging in their lessons, right? Um, and so you can end up with dynamics that are kind of power struggles where you're insisting on a particular set of behaviors before you, the instruction or the assessments can begin. Um, and so for speech language pathologists, that could mean you know, maybe maybe not insisting that the child is sitting at the table when you're doing your therapy or, you know, um, or allowing the child to be distracted for, for patches of time and then getting back to the activity once they've done so on their own inclination. So I, I, had, I had clinically an interesting experience early on in that language acquisition preschool. So the language acquisitions preschool, which was the uh, intervention program that Mabel Rice designed for kids with specific language impairment, um, had an interesting mix of students in the classroom. So there was also a group of kids that were learning English as a second language, and then monolingual kids without speech or language impairments. 
And um, what this meant was that the curriculum had to be able to be adapted at multiple levels simultaneously. Um, it also meant that we encouraged a lot of peer-to-peer -peer interactions um, in the preschool context. Um, and more than a couple of times, we had kids that were receiving services in the pullout clinic, you know, a one-on-one -on -one interventions with the clinician um, that had earned a reputation for being um, behavioral management issues um, that when they transferred over into the preschool context, those behavioral difficulties went away. And there, and there was a kid who was diagnosed with severe ADHD. Um, and when he made the transition into our preschool, it took him about three weeks, maybe a month to kind of stop zooming around the classroom <laughs> and get calibrated into the, into the lessons. But he did, he did thrive in that environment where the, his language abilities were part of the accommodations that were set up for them. Um, and so it, you can't have all these sort of secondary compensations and reactions to what could unintentionally become a heavy-handed behavioral management mm -hmm. approach um, that um, are really exasperating feeding those behaviors um, that can go away if you make adjustments that accommodate the child's language abilities. Um, and I think that's a really key point, Sean, just thinking about the classroom environment. How can we adjust the environment to enable access? I mean, here in Australia, we've got legislative requirements similar to the US where we have to legally make adjustments for children with developmental language disorder or any you know, disability or learning condition um, that enables them access to learning like their peers. But I think that unless we've got those uh, supports in place, it can be really hard to then know what individualised supports are required. And in fact, some of our children might benefit from whole class-based adjustments. You know, I've worked with teachers who've said, oh, using this visual schedule, it's actually been really good for all the children, not just the child with That's right. That's DLD right. in the classroom. And yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's impacted on the behaviours of other children who may or may not have diagnoses, you know, perhaps just because you don't have the label doesn't mean you don't have the condition. Uh, you know, you've got all these other children floating around in the mix that can benefit from uh, adjustments within a whole class environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would, it, to the extent that we, we're able to do this, to sort of to realign the sort of um, flowchart of uncovering what is um, contributing to a, a child's difficulties when they're struggling in the classroom. Um, if we could have uh, language disorder at a higher priority than it seems to be, mm. um, I think we would would be in a much stronger position. Um, and and I think I think we would be able to identify those kids who truly have both developmental language disorder and ADHD, um, because what we've done is we've kind of exhausted the possibilities of what language disorder on its own could contribute to the child's behavior profile. And 
uh, if language is improving, but the behaviors aren't, then that's a strong signal that they need a different kind of um, uh, intervention than what we're able to do. But oftentimes we start with trying to manage the behavior um, first um, rather than, you know, look for some um, contributions from receptive and expressive language. Yeah, absolutely. I think it would be the, you know, tale as old as time that a child has come to me with uh, an ADHD, an auditory processing disorder, or a dyslexia diagnosis. And then as soon as we evaluate their language skills, we realize that language is having a significant contribution to their performance, either at home, in the classroom, or both. Um, so I think, I hope one day, maybe by the time I'm retired, who knows, we'll have language right up there in priorities. Um, but it well, seems I mean, to it, be, you know, these other skills get yeah. identified first, don't they? That's right. And you can you can imagine even from a from a cost benefit perspective, starting with language disorders first before you move into these other, which mm. could be potentially very expensive interventions mm. that include um, uh, behavioral interventions and pharmaceutical interventions, um, that if we if we started with a default premise that it could be a language disorder. Um, if we work on the language skills and they improve and then the behaviors improve, then that suggests that, yeah, that's what was really going on. But again, if we the language improves and the behavior doesn't, then that would be, a, yeah, a good candidate for something else. Yeah, absolutely. I'm conscious of time, Sean. I've kept you for longer than I promised. Um, but I'd love to know, in your opinion, what what do you hope to see in the future for DLD in the US or around the world, whether it's research or clinical work or maybe even service delivery? So, um, yeah, then that's that's a deep question. I think <laughs> lots of deep questions today. Yeah, I I I think that um, uh, raising the visibility, raising the consciousness amongst um, parents and teachers and pediatricians that this thing called DLD exists and um, it can look like something else um, would move things significantly. Now, one mm -hmm. thing that we struggle with in the United States is um, speech language pathologists don't really feel empowered to use terms like developmental language disorder with families. Um, they've received the message from the schools that um, school services don't require a diagnosis. And so therefore we should avoid diagnosing. Um, and it's almost like a dirty word um, to bring up the, the terms disorder into IEPs and things like that. And honestly, until we can move that dynamic into a, a better position, we're always going to be talking out of both sides of our mouth, right? Mm -hmm. This is a serious problem, but I, I can't call it a disorder, but it's serious and we need to do something about it. But, well, let's just focus on fixing the problem. Um, and so families are left like, well, what are you talking about? And, problem. and the, mm -hmm. the condition that you talked about earlier. So 
they go to the speech therapist, the speech therapist dances around and uses fancy terms like morphology and syntax, receptive, expressive, strengths and weaknesses. All of this stuff just gets described back to families. Um, and the families walk away with, well, I don't, I don't remember hearing what this thing is. So then they go to an audiologist and the audiologist says, I know what this is. This is centralized heart processing disorder. I see it all the time. Here's what I do about that. Whoa, that's like whiplash between those two professions. They go to a clinical psychologist and they say, I know what this is. This is ADHD. And here's these rating scales. And I can tell you how severe it is. And here's a, here's a brochure about your treatment options. And if you're really interested, here are dozens of meta-analyses that can speak to um, all the contributing covariates and factors mm -hmm. to response to intervention. Um, so we, we're losing public trust on that front if we don't actually use developmental language disorder um, and tell parents that that's what this is, that as your child grows up um, and needs services to address the um, consequences of that in reading and, um, and in, you know, where it gets relabeled dyslexia or learning disability. Um, one of the things that I'm concerned about, and we're, we have an active research project going on right now, is if the diagnosis of ADHD floats in for families of kids with language disorders because the schools aren't offering any other explanation or there's no others. So the services that evaporate when a child becomes conversationally adept, <laughs> yeah. the language disorder is still there, right? You look yeah. in their writing samples and they're omitting the grammatical forms that they used to have problems with in conversation, mm -hmm. um, the difficult, underlying difficulty is still there. So ADHD seems to fill in that gap of, of what the problem is. And so- it just seems um, to make sense. Yeah, yeah, it starts to make more sense. And, you know, the, the expressive weaknesses that are, were so clear when the child was young, um, get replaced with significant receptive difficulties that are harder to interpret and detect. Mm -hmm. um, and it, 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 it just seems it could be a, a, a diagnosis of convenience mm -hmm. when the real problem is like an re underlying receptive language problem. In, in, in a few words, <laughs> greater. I know, you like that? I, I, I never have a few words. I always have. <laughs> no. It's been uh, uh, great to actually expand on the topic because I think the the challenge, and this is something that's come up just recently, is for example, a journal article that, depending on the journal, has a very defined number of words you know that you can actually use to describe what your research is, and so often that gets forgotten. And so having actual conversations, you know, you go to a research conference and it's a fifteen minute presentation, or maybe you get thirty minutes if you're really lucky on a you know, on a particular topic, but really actually being able to have this sort of more than an hour with you to kind of explore the topic actually gives depth and robustness to actually uh, discussing DLD and ADHD. Yeah, and what yeah. Does it mean. and that's, 
that it's true that podcasts like this one and other ones really fill in a, a needed gap um, for families and clinicians and researchers to, to get a better sense yeah. of um, what's going on out there. Yeah. So as I draw to a close, I've just got one more question. Um, at the DLD project, we try to focus on self-care and finding time to breathe whenever we can in our busy day. As a researcher, what do you do to look after yourself? There's always okay. a loaded question, Sean. I know it is. <laughs> so there's, there's the idealized version of myself mm -hmm. um, where I would say, oh, I, I regularly go on hikes and make sure that I exercise. Um, multiple times a week and I honestly that's aspirational but I do I do um try and and do that and and living in in Utah there's lots of recreational activities outdoor activities um with great scenery so beautiful scenery um yes so when the toxins build up with too many um uh uh, flight, fight or flight re reactions to imagined threats, right? Like mm -hmm. deadlines and yeah. <laughs> writing papers and dealing with reviewers and yeah. Oh, yeah. writing presentations. Yeah, going out into nature has always been a, um, a very um, uh, nourishing activity. Yeah. Um, and then on, and then the other, in addition to nature, engaging in social. Um, uh, and, uh, dynamics is healthy and I try to make sure that I do that and I like to do this through a variety of board games that I, I regularly um, engage in with different levels of competitiveness oh, yeah. um, I do that and then um, along that same line so I grew up during the age of uh, video games and Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. and I have revisited both of those and I've made sure that I play both of those and about the only thing I do consistently is a weekly session of Dungeons and Dragons with my son who lives in Minneapolis my brother who lives in Las Vegas mm -hmm. and we do this all through something that's very similar to this like zoom platform wow. with all this added stuff and mm -hmm. spend way too much time doing that. But um, <laughs> that's me geeking out. Um, that's great. And, and, and revisiting those childhood yeah, passions because those are also very nourishing. Yeah. I was going to say there's a new Dungeons and Dragons movie coming out. I see uh, the cinema's, Hopefully it won't disappoint the resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons um, players since uh, Stranger Things was released however many years ago. <laughs> I was going to say most of, I've learned a lot about Dungeons and Dragons from my clients who uh, oh, def yes. definitely spent many a therapy session on character design. Um, for those of who, them who are new to the uh, to playing, it's a very intense part of the early stages, I believe. <laughs> is it is. At what your character is and isn't and how they will perform within the game. So I've learned yeah, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Right. Well, few final key, I guess if we were to sum up our discussion today, is there sort of a couple of key points you'd love listeners to take away? This is just a great audio grab as well. So, you know, 
what sorts of things would you oh. like people to take away from our conversation? So I guess one thing I take away is if as a as a practicing clinician, if you feel like you are behind the curve and trying to figure out how to deal with um, language disorders and ADHD um, and how to differentiate them from each other and what to do with them where they're both in the same client, um, that feeling is real. The, the evidence isn't there to really support your work in the way that it should. Mm. And so um, the programs of research really need to catch up on giving clinicians stronger tools mm. um, and, and moving forward with our interventions, taking into account how um, different aspects of a child's profile might impact on their response to our interventions yeah. um, is something um, to look forward to. Um, <laughs> the other thing is that I, I, I do believe as speech language pathologists, sometimes we aren't as assertive as we could be in these interdisciplinary treatment design sessions where um, we, we are the advocate for people, including accommodations to poor language skills. Um, and that goes for the behavioral um, issues that children might exhibit in the classroom, but also, you know, with, with those sort of cognitive behavioral therapies where people are really um, wanting to move things. Mm -hmm. um, those are so verbally dependent that it's going to be in their best interest to make those accommodations if they want their interventions to work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess just sort of embrace the messiness of it all yeah. um, that there's lots for everyone to learn about um, all these different conditions. It, we haven't gotten to a place where there's a lot of crosstalk between the fields, mm. um, which I would also, going back to your earlier observation, that would be a nice thing moving forward. I, I, I did have a very revealing um, interaction when I gave a talk to a, a, a room full of um, doctoral students in clinical psychology. Um, and I asked about what kind of exposure they had had to developmental language disorders in their training. And they said that they, they go through the DSM which is the American uh, <laughs> version of the ICD. Um, but it, they would go through it chapter by chapter. And when they got to the chapter on communication disorders, they skipped it and said, that's what speech pathologists do. So you don't need to know that. And so appreciating the fact that the most informed person in the room on communication disorders, language disorders, is the speech pathologist. Um, the other people in the room don't know nearly as much as you do. Um, and you can't take for granted that, you know, that the psychiatrist or the pediatrician even knows what this is. I've been, I've heard that in med school, pediatricians might get a lecture on developmental disabilities with a paragraph <laughs> on communication disorders. And that's it. So yeah. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time today. I greatly appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it. Um, 
and I'm sure we'll be in touch in the near future. Excellent. Mm -hmm. I appreciated our time. Thank you, Professor Redmond, for that amazing deep dive into ADHD and DLD. If you want to know more about DLD and ADHD, really exciting news. We've actually got a new short course about to launch on June 7. There'll be a live event. You can join Natalie Manley, speech pathologist, psychologist, and director of Capable Kids for two hours to discuss current research and functional strategies to support people with DLD and ADHD. This course is for families, health professionals, educators, anyone with an interest in DLD and ADHD. You can jump online now and register at thedldproject.com. It's only $49 Australian, which converts very well for our international friends. Thank you for joining us on the Talking DLD podcast. I do have some homework for you because Sean did say that you can't take for granted that the psych or the pediatrician will know anything about DLD and that when you're in the room, the person with DLD and definitely the speech pathologist will often be the most knowledgeable person in the room on DLD. So let's get out there and let's have lots of conversations with people about DLD. Let's make them aware. Let's have an impact. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next month.